You are now listening to the February 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. from the program Near My God to Thee. Those who served in the army might be able to relate to the image of being a soldier for God's kingdom in a deeper way. On the contrary, those who never served in the army might have a hard time relating to being a soldier for God's kingdom. If we think in a spiritual way about this world being at enmity with God, then as church members in God's kingdom, We cannot deny that we live in a spiritual battle in this world. Therefore, we must always remember that we live here on earth as Christ's soldiers. There are many hymns that contain this kind of analogy. Hymns such as, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, Onward Christian Soldiers, and Conquering Now and Still to Conquer compares us believers to soldiers of Christ. Today, We'll learn the story behind one of these songs called Stand Up For Jesus. First, let's listen to the hymn. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high His royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, His army shall Till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Here is the first verse. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer a loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. This song gives us strength to just get up and march forward for the Lord. This hymn, Stand Up for Jesus, was written by Pastor George Duffield. However, this song is not about Pastor George Duffield, but about the life of a young pastor he knew named Dudley Tinge. Through a drama, we'll see what kind of life Pastor Dudley Tinge lived in order for Pastor George Duffield to write about him in a hymn. In 1865, there was a great wave of revival in Philadelphia. Many people were involved in this revival. Revival events were not only taking place in churches, but also in hotels and theaters day and night. Numerous church members from out of state gathered to see this revival movement, and when they went back home, they spread the revival movement there. This revival movement shook the continent of North America for half a century. A young 29-year-old preacher named Dudley Ting was at the center of this movement. Pastor Dudley Ting followed his father, Pastor Stephen Ting, into ministry. He preached the powerful, uncompromising gospel message. His message began to change many people around him. However, 
not everyone liked Pastor Ting's sermons. There were people who were uncomfortable with his direct and forceful message and how he opposed slavery in that era. These people gathered their power and removed him from church. However, even under such oppression, Pastor Ting did not submit and fearlessly spread the word of truth. Everyone, I have received a calling from God. My calling is to preach the Lord's word as it is. That is my duty. Although people may oppress and oppose me, I cannot alter God's word. The Lord is your everything. He saved you by dying on the cross. Therefore, you must serve the Lord by giving your all. Everyone, stand up and serve the Lord. Over 5,000 people were gathered in the Philadelphia Public Hall where he preached. After he finished his sermon, over a thousand people got down on their knees before God and dedicated themselves. Later on, after meditating on God's word, Pastor Ting went for a walk in a nearby farm to get some fresh air. On the farm, a mule was turning the machine that removed the corn husk. Oh, what an amazing machine! It can remove the corn husk so easily. The mule is working so hard. Pastor Ting went near the mule that was turning the machine and patted it. At that moment, his clothes got stuck in the teeth of a saw and grabbed his body. In a horrible accident, his right arm was dragged into the machine. Pastor Ting immediately went to the hospital and he had to have his right arm amputated. Unfortunately, he bled so much after the amputation. Pastor Ting couldn't recover and was dying. Pastor Ting was lying in bed about to die and many people surrounded him. His father, Pastor Stephen Ting, was standing closest to him. Father. Yes, son. I'm right here. I'm going to the Lord now. Please, tell this to the people. Tell them to stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Yes, I'll be sure to tell them. May you go to the Lord before me. A moment later, Pastor Ting passed away. The people were mourning in sadness. Among those who observed the final moment of Pastor Ting was Pastor George Duffield. After witnessing the end of Pastor Ting, he preached the word in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 for the Sunday Sermon. Our beloved Pastor Ting has gone to heaven. As I was observing his death and listening to his dying wish, I realized what he was truly trying to tell us. The scripture from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14 lifted me from my sadness. It says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. We are people who fight and live for the truth. Although Pastor Ting is no longer with us, we will meet again one day. We must remember the word from Ephesians and stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place and march forward. Pastor George Duffield preached about the word in Ephesians. At the end of his sermon, he was inspired by Pastor Ting's dying wish and recited the poem he wrote. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed.
In a way, Pastor Tinge's end may seem futile. The news of Pastor Tinge's death and his dying wish spread to the people through his father. This news became a great fuel to the flame of the revival in North America. They say a soldier lives and dies by a command. A true soldier is a person who is loyal to a command. It seems as though Pastor Tinge wanted us to live by being loyal to Jesus Christ's command. I hope we could follow the command of our leader Jesus Christ and live in loyalty. I'll see you next week from Nearer My God to Thee. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is confidence. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. We're wrapping up our Happy Life series this morning where Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. We're going to be thinking about that this morning. Now, just to catch you up to speed about where this fits in the context of Matthew, you'll remember that Matthew actually launches his gospel 
with a genealogy. And most of you probably, when you first started reading your Bible, read that, and you're like, well, I'm going to jump over this to the encouraging bit. I'm not sure why anybody would put all of this in here. But I believe that what's going on in Matthew is, Matthew is looking to 2 Samuel 7. And he sees the promise of a new Davidic king who would come from an offspring of David, who would have an eternal throne, who would undo the effects of sin in this world and actually bring about peace or shalom for the people of God. And as he begins that genealogy, what he's doing is he's connecting Abraham to David to Jesus. And he's saying Jesus is that king that we've been longing for. Now, if you fast forward up to when you get to Matthew 5, he begins his preaching ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. And as he begins to preach, he starts with a number of blessed statements. Now, that word for blessed, particularly here in Matthew 5, comes from a Greek word that we've talked about. It means happy or flourishing. And so what Jesus is doing is he's preaching to the disciples and the other Gentiles who are listening on. He is beginning this sermon with a vision of what it looks like for you to be in a flourishing place according to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. He's saying, here's what it looks like for you to know that you're in a a good place. And this vision that he gives, it looks so upside down. It's completely different than the kind of philosophical systems that were there in that day, claiming that pleasure is the way that you are going to know that you are in a good place. And that's the pursuit of of humanity. And the more pleasure you get, the better of a life you're living. And I can't imagine that persecution looks good in light of that. And of course, we also know that this wasn't too far from the way that Jews understood God and whether or not they were in a good place with God. We know the Jews, uh, you remember that rich young ruler who thought he was in a good place. He was obeying the rules, the law. He had lots of money. It seemed like he was in a good place with God. And Jesus says, you're in a good place except for one thing, the thing that matters above all things, that is your relationship with me. Go sell all and follow me. And then you'll know that you're truly in a good place. And he walks away what? Sad, not happy. Happy according to the world, but not happy according to the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, as we're dropping down into this last beatitude, We find that Jesus shows a kind of irony that eclipses them all. And that is that those who are persecuted for righteousness sake are actually in a very good place. They're in a good place, not according to the eyes of the world, but according to the eyes of God. Now let me make a few quick observations about the structure of this text as as we're moving along, just so you understand what's going on. First, uh, you'll remember that the first beatitude and the eighth beatitudes, they end with that same statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's, that's a good argument that there are actually eight beatitudes and that this is sort of the last beatitude. Also, did you catch that these speak of a present reality? The first and the last, but the middle. Remember, they're all looking forward to the future. And so Jesus is speaking of a kind of already not yet reality in these beatitudes that's taking place. We have not yet received all that we shall have. And yet there is a true sense in which there is a present reality that this affects these beatitudes. And one last observation. Did you notice that Jesus shifts pronouns in verse 10 from they, speaking to the crowd generally, to you? That's always important when there's a pronoun shift. You want to pay attention to who is Jesus talking to. And so Verse 10, he's speaking to the crowd in general, including the Gentiles, but it seems like in verses 11 to 12, he's zeroing in on the disciples. 
And here's what's happening. I believe there's a transition that's happening in the sermon where he's moving from these general beatitudes specifically to the disciples in his discussion. And those verses, 11 to 12, I think are really helping us unpack what he meant by verse 10. So I'm going to be kind of toggling back and forth between 10 and 11 to 12 this morning. But we're ready to get started. So if you're taking notes, here's our big idea. Here's our big idea. It's this. You can write this down. The life of a follower of Christ means the cross before the crown. The life of a follower of Christ means the cross before the crown. Now notice first, he says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we need to make some observations about this. First, this is not honestly quite what you would expect, right? I mean, can we just agree on that? You're reading through the list of these Beatitudes, and he is talking about a certain kind of person. And notice the way that he describes this kind of person. It is someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns sin, someone who is meek and hungry for righteousness, a kind of person who is merciful to others, pure in heart, a peacemaker. Now, if you were just to stop right there, I would think the next statement would be, this person gets a trophy, right? That's a good guy. This is a good woman. This is the kind of person you want to hang out with. But instead, you get the seemingly unfair declaration that this person is not going to receive a crown like we would expect, but a cross. They're not going to receive, it says in this moment, immediate rewards, but instead persecution. Now, this seems really unfair just to human standards, and we know that God is just. And we think in our minds and hearts, obviously good people should receive rewards and bad people should receive punishments, kind of like Christian karma, right? Where uh, the effect and the cause, they always make sense together. And and you're wondering in those moments, like, I, I didn't think this was the program. I thought the program was, you turn the heat on, I get more righteous, and then you take the heat off because now I'm cooked, right? But that doesn't seem to be the way that spirituality works. It's in those moments, though, that I'm just seeing this disparity between my, my obedience to God and the experience of my life on the ground level that I'm asking, is my heart really anchored to Christ in heaven or to the things of this earth? Like, that's when the questions become real. Is my confidence really in Christ? But notice that Jesus isn't speaking here just of persecutions in general. No, here he is speaking of something else. Now, can we also admit that sometimes we invite trouble and mislabel that trouble that we cause on ourselves, persecution? Have you ever been there? Like, you maybe uh, sinned and then things got rough and you forgot about the sin that got you there and all you think about is the there that you're in and you're like, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, why are things so hard? Or maybe it's that you just made a foolish decision. And it's interesting, Peter actually picks up on both of these scenarios in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, look, you don't need, you need to make sure that you're not causing trouble for yourself because you've basically been a punk when you're suffering for righteousness sake. I mean, I don't know a better way to put it. He says, you know, you're, You're not gentle in your speech. You're kind of, you're mean. You're hostile. You're angry. You're not being gentle. And he says, you need to make sure that when you're suffering for righteousness sake, that you are gentle and respectful. 
And not only that, he says, you need to make sure that you're not bringing suffering or persecution on yourself because of your sin. So in 1 Peter 5.15, he says, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. And he specifically, I believe, has Jesus' statement here in mind, suffering for righteousness' sake. My heart deflects responsibility as a natural reflex. I think we all should reevaluate our hearts carefully when we find ourselves in a situation where we sense that we are being persecuted. In other words, we should never waste that sense of persecution. I believe there is a way in which our eyes get zeroed in on our souls and our circumstances with a kind of clarity that doesn't always come to us when we are in a comfortable situation. Persecution helps us to see ourselves more clearly. It helps us to evaluate whether or not we have brought this upon ourselves or whether or not it is something that has come because of our being associated with Jesus. Uh, Thomas Watson said this, and you need to ask yourself if this could be said of you. He says, when men through precipitancy and rashness, now you're like, what's precipitancy? I looked it up, it means the same thing as rashness. So when men through rashness and rashness run themselves into trouble, it is a cross of their own making and not of God's laying upon them. Anybody here good at making crosses for yourselves? I might be the only one, but I'm telling you, sometimes I know this is me. See, but Jesus is not speaking of someone who goes looking for persecution or creates it or builds their own crosses. Jesus speaks particularly third of those persecuted for righteousness sake. Did you see that? He here says they're a specific kind of persecuted person. Now, what does persecution mean? Maybe you're like, I don't really quite connect with all that that means. I didn't mean to bury the lead, but persecution, it's a kind of thing that takes a couple of different forms. You can face physical persecution, or you can face verbal persecution. So, uh, you'll notice that Jesus shifts to those second person pronouns in verse 11, and he begins to kind of unravel what persecution can look like. He gives a couple of kinds of verbal persecution, and then he, of course, speaks of physical persecution. Uh, So you'll notice, uh, first, that reviling, in verse 11, is one that he mentions to the disciples. Uh, Reviling, and the other is slander. And these are both verbal persecutions. Now, reviling is a word that means to insult or shame someone with words. Jesus experienced this from the Jewish leaders when he was hanging upon the cross. It's there in Matthew 7, 27, 42, that they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. And not only that, we're told that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You'll notice that the words that they used were true words. Jesus is the Christ. But they also used that truth to mock him. You'll notice that our cancel culture will quickly dismiss and cancel tradition, traditional Christian claims as being bigoted, but also uses slander in their dismissal. Does that make sense? It's not just that we are, are bigots and I don't like the truth, but they add something that is untrue right next to it. So let me give you an example. If you're a Christian who is against abortion, you are anti-women's right due to your patriarchal beliefs. Have you heard that? Like, that's not me. Like, I believe that human life is valuable and I want to protect it. 
Uh, but, but that does not mean that I don't think that women should have rights. In fact, I believe that the way that the Bible speaks of women's rights is unparalleled in every other philosophical system and that we see that women are created in the very image of God. Or what about when you look at a view of homosexuality as being a sin because the Bible says so, and that must therefore mean that we hate gays. And yet, as I read the scriptures, it tells me that I am to love my gay neighbor, to preach Christ to them, just as I preach Christ to all who suffer from any kind of sin. We all need Christ, and he's the only way to salvation. And we could go on and on. Like that affirming uh, Black Lives Matter, saying that we don't agree with the philosophy that's behind that system, means that we must not believe that black lives do matter. And absolutely they do. I believe that racism is a lie from the pit of hell. See, this is all fake, slanderous news. It's not new. And if you are a Christian, what you can expect is that you will be slandered in some way for the cause of the gospel. And let me just encourage you, maybe you're a young Christian and you feel like it's hard to have these conversations because you're still trying to figure out like, Where's my other shoes so I can get to class and stuff like that? Everybody's getting all philosophical and you don't even know the answers. And like, find a good church, find somebody to disciple you to help you think through these things and realize that it's not necessarily a bad thing if you say something that people don't like. Now, you need to make sure you need to say it the right way. Make sure it really is what the Bible says. Make sure that your convictions are true, that your conscience is clear. But, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if people say, that your belief in the Scriptures, your love for Christ, means that you're not one of them. But there's also physical persecution. That's that, I believe, high-grade suffering that we typically think of. Like when we look at nations like China or North Korea, and more recently Afghanistan, and the ways that they persecute Christians. When Jesus tells the disciples they specifically will be persecuted in verse 12, He reminds them, They're in good company because he says, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Jesus speaks of a a person living in a certain kind of way and for a certain reason. That's what means they are being persecuted for righteousness sake. This person so lives to do the will of the Father as is revealed in the scriptures. They are someone that is a, a Bible person who looks to live it out. But did you catch the shift when Jesus speaks to his disciples in verse 11? Jesus says, they will be persecuted on my account. This comes close, I believe, to claiming Jesus' deity in this moment. In fact, Craig Keener says it this way. He says, you know, Jewish teachers of the day, who some might have expected Jesus as being as a mere teacher, they would expect students to suffer for God's name, but not for their own names. That would have been unreasonable suffering. But Jesus says, on my account, it is worthy that you are persecuted. I am not like the teachers that you have seen in the past. See, Jesus is calling his students to suffer on his account. Furthermore, Jesus says that righteousness' sake, hear me, you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, it centers on following the way of life that Jesus led. He is the one that we look to in our suffering. Thus, following Jesus' name, it means a wholehearted devotion to living a righteous life. That's what it looks like to suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, let me just give you five 
quick checks to ask yourself whether or not you are being persecuted for righteousness sake or some other dumb reason, okay? Let's just go through these one by one real quick. First, ask yourself, is obedience to God's word driving you? Is it really scripture? Now, that's not always easy to discover. Sometimes we sort of take text out of context. We eisegete to support the thing we already want to do. But you need to test your heart to see, is this really the scriptures and what God has actually said that is driving me? Or am I being driven by a desire to be known? Do I like fights, whether it's persecution or some other kind of fight? Do Have I maybe mislabeled my political convictions as biblical convictions? Now, both are okay to have. Political convictions and biblical convictions, I just want to make sure I know the difference between the two. Second, am I increasingly evidencing fruits of the Spirit in my suffering? In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says that you suffer for righteousness' sake, always ready to give a defense. But he goes on to say, always do it in a spirit of gentleness and respect. Uh, Third, do you suffer as a Christian for the glory of God? 1 Peter 4.16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Has it been made clear that you are being targeted for Christ or distinctly Christian beliefs? Has someone said, like, it's because you are a Christian, it's because of those Christian beliefs. And by the way, those beliefs that they are highlighting are actually your beliefs. Fourth, is your conscience clean in your suffering? Uh, It's interesting. Paul experienced much persecution. He was beaten, whipped, slandered, reviled, shipwrecked, and the list goes on. And yet we are told in the midst of all of that, in Acts 23.1, he says, I have lived in all good conscience to this day. In other words, When the heat gets turned up, there are all kinds of ways that you can act in ungodliness. Sin can come up. Uh, You can do things that you should repent of that you have not. And yet we find that Paul says that he sought in every way to to do what he believed was right. He didn't do what seemed wrong. He had a clear conscience. Only the gospel caused offense. And can I just tell you, brothers and sisters, something? My experience in the Christian life, it is a terrible thing to live in a way that you don't have a clear conscience. It is a sad existence. It will not let you go if you have the Holy Spirit. But it is a beautiful and life-giving thing to do if you are living in a way that you know that you are seeking in all integrity's sake to honor God. You're repenting of sins where you've sinned. You're seeking to change and be transformed by the power of the gospel. That's a good place. It's a good place. But notice fifth, can you seek the good of those who persecute you? Now, this is like next level stuff. I'm not always sure that I'm here, just to be honest with you. But notice in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, Jesus says this. I mean, just on the heels of this beatitude, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. See, loving your enemy, this side of Christ's return, it might mean praying for their good or for your heart 
to want to be able to pray for their good. But second, notice the promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here Jesus repeats the ground of that first beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it doesn't look like self-confidence and power. That might be what we expect if we're thinking about the Roman Empire or the great empires of this world. But spiritual poverty in oneself and persecution from without mark those in Christ's kingdom. Did you catch that? They're those who are poor in spirit and persecuted. They are low on the inside and they are also humble on the outside in the way that they are receiving persecution. Those are the ones who already possess the kingdom. But Jesus, he gives even more clarity, I think, in verses 11 to 12. You'll notice it's there again that Jesus has shifted his attention to the disciples saying, you, he says, blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then verse 12, and be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One commentator noticed that it's fascinating that Jesus didn't say before us, because he's the eternal one. I might be reading into it, but it's true. Now, a few realities here strike me. First, notice in verses 11 to 12 that he shifts persecution for righteousness' sake in verse 10, to persecution on my account in verse 11. He's speaking of suffering while seeking to honor Christ as the king of your life. Our confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves. Second, notice that Jesus says to rejoice and be glad that you are persecuted. In fact, one old commentator translated this text, rejoice ye and leap for joy. Sounds a little bit excessive. I mean, I'm getting persecuted, and you want me not only to rejoice, but to jump up with joy? Again, not what you'd expect. Jesus says, this too shall pass away and give way to a better day. That's what we long for. See, this is the day when we will exchange our cross for a crown of life. See, we we, we experience the cross before the crown, but there's a day coming when we will give up our cross and receive the crown that we long for. Is a reward the same for all? I don't have time to go into this. I believe there's a sense in which there's a good argument to say that some, that all of us will be given according to our faithfulness. That might look different forever for some of us. Others believe the reward is the same. Either way, let me just clean it up this way and say, if I'm least in the kingdom of heaven, I'm in a good place. If I make it, I'm good. But Jesus says this future reward causes us to rejoice in our suffering because it reveals that Christ really is our all. See, sometimes we don't know that Christ is our all until Christ is all we have. That's when we experience his persevering grace the most acutely. Now, notice the second rationale that he gives. You look to the prophets. Now, you remember speaking of Moses in Hebrews 11.26, we're told Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Did you catch that? He considered him the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now that's the Old Testament. And he is anticipating the Messiah. But later the disciples would see the great prophets, Moses and Elijah, alive and standing with Jesus and the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Think about this. Matthew 5, you're going to suffer tribulation like the prophets. I'm thinking, oh great, like the great prophets, like Moses and Elijah. And then Peter shows up to the transfiguration mountain. He's like, oh, Moses and Elijah. They live. Death has not defeated them. There is hope for those who are persecuted. Jesus says his disciples are equal and greater than the Old Testament prophets here. See, I I think there's a major shift in redemptive history that's taking place in these verses. Jesus is looking to his disciples and he says, you are equal and greater than the Old Testament prophets and those who persecute them are lumped in with those who killed the prophets. That is my love for you. That is God's posture towards you. He is for you. But those of us who are persecuted for following Jesus also share a good company with the prophets and the disciples. Of course, Jesus himself became like the persecuted prophets. You remember in John 15, 20, he reminds his disciples, the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Of course, this is the shape of Christ's ministry. Please hear this. This is basic Christianity. The shape of Christian ministry. It is not winning all the time in this place. No, it it is a life of humility that is followed by exaltation. It is a life of suffering followed by glory. We must take up the cross on our shoulders before Christ places a crown upon our heads. Now, there are joys unspeakable for those who love Jesus, even now. But we know that this pales in comparison to what is to come. Jesus' cross and resurrection, it gives me meaning. It gives meaning to God's people of the past and the future glory that awaits us when he returns. That's the gospel medicine that our hearts need to turn our sorrows into rejoicing. Well, let me close with uh, four quick applications on persecution. First, Christian, persecution creates the optical illusion that Jesus is further away, but he's actually closer. And Christian, second, persecution for Christ's sake is not due to your insufficient faith or faithfulness. Third, Christians dodging persecution is not the mission of the church's faithfulness is. Like, I don't have time to dwell here, but I would just say, like, our number one agenda as a church, we don't dream about Jesus has succeeded or failed based on the degree to which we have religious liberty. Now, that said, please fight with all your might for religious liberty. Like, I love it. I want it. But as we feel that encroaching, that that sense of loss of some of our religious liberties, we, we need to recognize that that doesn't mean that Jesus has failed in his mission to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We need to continue to, to, to proceed on the mission. Tell people about their need, not just for peace with one another, but peace with God. That only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth, Christian persecution clarifies what that we believe the reward is completely worth it. Let me say that again. Persecution clarifies that we believe the reward is completely worth it. So Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, being God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, and, I love what He, he adds to this, and that He rewards those who seek Him. Do you see that? That's faith. We believe that we have a God who rewards those who seek Him. Now, this works in a number of different ways. In suffering, 
There's one sense in which we are being sanctified as Christians. And in that sanctification, we all have ways in which we do not love God wholeheartedly as we should. We do not pursue Christ as wholeheartedly as we should. We've been talking about that in our discipleship classes with Fred Rowe. A lot of those failures at living for Christ are worship issues. We don't worship Jesus rightly. And sanctification is actually a process by which we are more and more turning our hearts towards full, wholehearted devotion towards God. So when persecution hits, we start asking questions like, am I, am I living in sin? Like, am I bringing this on myself? Is there pride in my life that needs to be gone? Is there some kind of sexual sin that I need to repent of? What is it that's going on? Is, is there something that I, am, I can attribute to this in my sin? And in that moment, we are becoming more and more perfect or wholeheartedly devoted to God and killing that sin. It's the way we become wholly more and more devoted to Jesus. And our life is about becoming more devoted to Jesus and our thoughts and our desires and our emotions and our works until Jesus comes back. But not only that, persecution not only sanctifies us, it sifts us. It sifts those who think they are Christians out from those who are truly Christians. Now let me just say this, like the, the Bible, I think you know this, says there's a category of person who thinks they are a Christian but are not. Matthew 13, 21, Jesus is describing a kind of faith that when they receive the word, it falls on the rock, it springs up to life, but as soon as the heat of persecution comes, it immediately falls away and scatters. Why? Because it's not true faith. And when persecution hits, those who do not love Christ most, or not seeking to be devoted to Him most, fall away. Maybe that's you. Just think about this. We haven't really hit hard persecution. I hope that we never do, unless the Lord wills it, and, and then we'll face it. But does comfortable Christianity appeal to you? It's interesting. Sometimes it doesn't take too much to, to veer our attention away from Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves in those moments, am I really loving Jesus or the benefits that come with Jesus? And once those benefits are stripped away, am I still seeking Christ? Maybe that's friends. Maybe that's a reputation. Maybe it's a girl that you're interested in or a guy. Maybe it's that you get lots of encouragement and affirmation because, wow, it's really cool that you like Jesus and stuff. But Jesus warns that that's not biblical faith. Maybe you need this morning to put your faith in Jesus, your suffering Savior who relentlessly went to the cross without flinching and died for you, suffered for you, was persecuted for you, so that you'd be the kind of Christian that would be persecuted for him. Third, persecution shows union with Christ and his people. While hurting Christians, while hunting Christians, the ascended Christ stopped Saul dead in his tracks in Acts 9-4, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, who is he persecuting? It's the church, but Jesus so identifies with the church that he says to Persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. That's the kind of unity that he feels with his people. And Jesus says, if you persecute the church, you have persecuted me. Jesus is with us in our sufferings. He feels them. He sees them. He doesn't miss them. It's as though he himself has been persecuted. We, like him, shall be raised up on the last day, though. So let us pray for Christians in places like Afghanistan, Iran, China, and others, that God would protect them and carry them through persecution faithfully. We do that every Sunday as we pray for the nations. 
Let us pray and be discipled intentionally in such a way that our faith would be persecution ready for whatever cross is laid on our shoulders until that day when Jesus himself gives us our crown so that we might be like one of the Christians in Afghanistan who sent my pastor friend Josh Manley this text with persecution in full view, gunshots out loud, people hunting him down along with his family, and he says this, I cannot stop my tears, but the good thing is this, it is because of Christ that we are suffering. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you this morning, this has been a sobering message. As we consider what it means to be a Christian, and Father, for some this morning, maybe this has been way different than what they anticipated it means to follow Jesus. But Father, I pray that for those of us who have heard this this morning, that you have helped us to see you truly in what you have called us to. Father, those here this morning who did not really understand the gospel and thought that the gospel would mean that things got better before they got worse, that you weren't the kind of Christ that intended them to go through hard things again, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see their need of you, of your son Jesus. That the reward that waits those who are in Christ is entirely worth it. Father, that they would truly put their faith in you this morning. And Father, we can't forget the nations that are being persecuted. We remember Christians in China, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere, Lord, who are suffering for the cause of the gospel. Father, hold them fast. Keep them safe. Protect them. Protect their faith. Help them to be faithful no matter what comes their way. And Lord, we, we ask that you would come quickly. Save us, we pray.
measures of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood before dead we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Now, probably at the same time, the sailors are trying to figure out who's done this. They're casting lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. So the sailors now begin their inquiry of Jonah in the midst of their panic and fear. And we see a rapid firing of questions at Jonah at this point after the lot falls on him. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us now. It's emphatic. Tell us now. You can imagine all these sailors in this ship that's about to go down surrounding Jonah going, tell us now. On whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Just a side note. You know, Jonah's going to say who he is. He says to them, verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I for the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. 
I fear the God who made this. Oh boy. The sailors in the midst of a supernatural storm, they know they're perishing. And Jonah says, this is the God I fear, the one who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's got correct theology here, but his heart is far from the right place, folks. And as I was going to share earlier, on a side note, have you ever noticed how God doesn't let you blend in with non-believers if you're a true believer? You can't be a secret Christian for long. Often God sovereignly uses the queries of non-believers to reveal what we really believe and who we trust. Jonah was not going to let this out, but they got it out of him. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah admits it only after being questioned. Now notice the sailor's response, verse 10. Then, this is boom, boom, boom action in the Hebrew language. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? Now, we see an explanation at this point. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Obviously, in the midst of the line of questioning, Jonah said in some fashion, I'm fleeing from the Lord. And they say, how could you do this? Maybe God's saying to you, how can you do this? He's called you to serve his body. He's called you to walk in a manner worthy. And you're walking somewhere else. You've escaped where God has called you to serve. Because it displeases you. How could you do this? Well, the passage here shows us that at times, our discipline does not just affect us, it affects those around us. There is collateral damage from Jonah's sin here, folks. How could you do this? Maybe some of you are not obeying the Lord. You're fleeing the spheres in which God has called you to serve. You're never around church. You're never around the body. And the storms around you are affecting those around you. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that if in your heart of hearts you know it's true, then just confess it and say, Lord God, not my will, but thy will be done. Because it's always a blessing to serve the Lord no matter how hard it is. But... Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. It's hard to go the other way. And God's a good God to make it hard because he loves us. How could you do this? Verse 11, now they realize it's Jonah. The point is what God called Jonah to do was displeasing. But he had a lack of faith in God who is a good God. And we need to recognize everything God calls us to do is good. Jonah wanted them judged rather than saved to the point that he was willing to die. It's really sad. Great unbelief concerning the nature of God. And maybe some of you were there. But God's a good God. He wants to convict us so that we will be corrected, that we would be trained in righteousness and walk in a manner worthy. Maybe some of us, maybe some of you, in a different way, are displeased at what God has called you to do in his word. You're displeased. If you're a true believer and a bondservant, you're called to serve him and not yourself. He's not going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, when you're not even serving. But God's a good God. If you're truly his, he will bring the storms on us. Some of you come and go as you please. You see your life and your time is more important than others. You're like Jonah and not like Christ. We need to see our time is not our own. We need to serve the Lord. We need to recognize that it is his will we should desire to do rather than our own. 
I'll give you an example. Some of you I barely see now. Sometimes there's extending circumstances. You know in your heart if what I'm saying is valid to you or not. Some of you might identify with this church. Say, I go to VBF. If someone were to ask you, what church do you go to? I go to Vancouver Bible Fellowship. But if someone were to ask you, what church do you serve at? What would you say? Brothers and sisters, God wants us to be convicted so that we can be restored. Regardless of this church, we need to be in a godly fellowship, being built up, serving one another, and then going into the world. We need to be doing that. Otherwise, the Lord might as well take us home. So Jonah recognizes it's his fault, says, basically, kill me. He certainly understood it was sin to do so, obviously. It's my fault. But now look at this. He's actually calling upon other people to do the dirty work. He's not willing to throw himself over because he knows that's a sin. He knows he shouldn't take his own life. But he's saying, you guys pick me up and throw me into the sea. Still selfish. How do these pagans respond? We see concern. Opposite of Jonah. Verse 13, however, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming ever stormier against them. Instead of throwing him over, they tried to save everybody. In an ironic fashion, these pagans were more concerned about life than God's servant, Jonah. Some of you may find yourselves acting worse than those who do not know God because you're in sin. And Jonah was doing that. Hebrews chapter 3, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day. That means you've got to be together as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Jonah's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God loves him, but he's disciplining him. God loves us. If you're truly his, he'll discipline you and I too. So we see the response of the pagan sailors looking to their false gods. Even in the midst of their pagan viewpoints, they have concern for life, Jonah's life. But in contrast, we see Jonah, the God-fearer, totally unconcerned, asleep. He could care less about everybody else. When he's confronted, he doesn't repent, but he calls upon them to do his dirty work. Jonah's selfish. Israel was selfish. They were just the same way. And maybe we are like that. Is your ship going down because of sin? Are you bringing others down with you? Do you care? Or are you like Jonah? Some of you are bringing your families down while you're disobedience. Do you care? Just cry out and repent. God's a good God. He's allowing it to be hard to restore you because he loves you. Okay, at this point, verses 14 to 17, we see two different responses from God now at this point. We saw two different responses earlier from the people on the ship and then Jonah. Now two different responses from God. He brings salvation to the sailors and he continues to discipline Jonah. Verse 14. Then they called upon the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. This is truly amazing. A few minutes ago, they were each calling on their own pagan gods. They are given some revelation from a disobedient prophet concerning the true God, and they believe. And they called out on the Lord, Yahweh, and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. After trying to save Jonah, what did they do? Did they cry out to each one's God? 
as they did earlier? No. They called out on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray. This is an amazing prayer as we see. First of all, they cry out to the Lord. Secondly, they are aware that God is disciplining Jonah. We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on the account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou hast done as thou hast pleased. Notice they're concerned that God might lay Jonah's death on their account. They're concerned about that. All they know about God is from this Jonah guy now. They're hearing the truth, and this Jonah guy is saying, throw me over, and they're concerned now. Their hearts are being changed, and they're crying out, don't let this innocent blood be put on us. And then we see an amazing portion of the prayer at the end. They believe God's in control, the entire thing, end of 14. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. Oh, if we would just really believe that, it would really change the way we think. Thou hast done, O Lord, what thou hast pleased. This is true lordship salvation. They fear the Lord. They recognize his authority over all. Let me share, nothing has changed in the New Testament. We believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. Romans chapter 10. But what does it say, verse 8? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, thou, O Lord, has done as you pleased, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you are in a spiritually treacherous situation. Now God is bringing these two things together. These sailors are about to die and they realize that and they cry out on the true living God. They were on the road to judgment, these sailors, and God brought truth concerning Christ. They believed it concerning Christ Jesus, the Lord, and they declared that. Second Corinthians 4, 3, Paul says to the critics about them not getting many converts, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Nothing's changed. People are saying, well, it must not be the right methods if people are not getting saved. Well, Paul is saying, even if it's veiled in your eyes, it's failing to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. He's the Lord. You need to recognize that or you'll never be saved. You need to recognize you are not the Lord, that you will stand before the Lord, that he is your creator, that you are accountable to him. And these sailors became saved when they recognized that Yahweh, the great I am, the God of the Hebrews, revealed in their word, is the Lord. They were saved. Some of you have a so-called faith in Christ, but in action he's not Lord. In your life, you have a Jesus that you believed in, but he's not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus is Lord. Cry out to him as Lord, and you will be saved. The sailors did. These pagans had a divine encounter, were given truth concerning the Lord through a disobedient prophet. They believed it, and we see their prayer of faith in the Lord. Thou hast done, Lord, as you pleased. 
God does what he pleases. When you come to that reality concerning Christ, God has changed your heart. So the sailors get saved in spite of Jonah. What happens next? So they picked up Jonah, verse 15, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Pretty simple verse to interpret. They picked him up, cast him into the sea, and what happened? The storm is over. Now, at this point, you might think the salvation of the sailors is maybe a foxhole salvation where in difficult circumstances they cry out to the Lord and then the circumstances are relieved and there's not much talk about Christ. We saw that with this plane that almost crashed in the, in the Hudson River. The first few things that came out, people were talking about the Lord, you know, and then, you know, a few hours go by and it's more so the captain's so great and it's more so all these other things. Was that the case here? Things are calm and they're now kind of saying, wow, we made it. What did they do? Verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice what they did when the sea stopped. They feared the Lord greatly. This word, Yareh, in the Old Testament, fear, speaks of acknowledging God's superiority over man to recognize his deity and thus responding in awe, humility, worship, love, and obedience. They feared the Lord. And they sacrificed to him. They made vows. Folks, these new converts on the boat exhibited an act of worship so opposite to the attitude of Jonah. Jonah was fearing the Lord, not in practice, but theologically. But God has a remedy for those who are disobedient. It's his discipline, which continues here. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Folks, God is in control here. The Lord hurled the storm. The Lord appoints a great fish. The term appointed here is an intensive stem. What does that mean? It speaks of appointing or ordaining rather than preparing, as some have said. He just appointed it or ordained it to happen. That's what it means. And many people have made a lot about the term great fish. What does that mean? In the Hebrew, it means great fish. That's all it means. It's a really big fish, a great fish that God ordained to swallow Jonah. And what we know about it was he was in the stomach of the fish for three days. And we're going to look at that next week in chapter 2, what went on when he was drowning and then when he went in the whale's belly. God's discipline is continuing of Jonah. The sailors are experiencing peace. They're trusting the Lord. It's at peace. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of you are in the great midst of major storms that are spiritual in nature, and you have no rest because of your sin. But in Christ alone there is rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So then we've seen God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, proclaim against it because of their wickedness. Jonah, because of his attitude towards the Ninevites and what God wants him to do and a lack of faith concerning the character of God, disobeys him. He turns the opposite direction, trying to go to Tarshish, but the Lord would not allow him to go very far. He sends a great storm. They're about to perish. The pagans call on their gods try to discern how the calamity has come. In God's sovereign providence, the lot falls on Jonah. He is questioned and the cat's out of the bag. He is the reason why this is happening. He is running from God. The sailors desperately try to save the ship and Jonah, but things get worse. And then the most wonderful thing happens. The sailors get saved. They cry out to the Lord, recognizing his sovereignty over all. And Jonah's discipline continues and he is thrown into the sea and swallowed 
by a whale. This is a true story concerning what happens when believers disobey God. God disciplines them. As I shared, maybe some of you are in the midst of a great storm, and the Lord has thrown it on you. Maybe your world is about to break up, physically, whatever it might be, relationally, financially. For those who don't know Christ, could it be that the Lord is using this to humble you, that you would acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Because that's your problem. You're the Lord, exhibited by your sin and disobedience. And God sent Christ. He took on human flesh. He lived the perfect life. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he died. He was in the ground for three days and three nights. He rose from the dead, and anyone who cries out to Christ for forgiveness of sins will be saved. What about us believers? Let me ask you and ask myself. Maybe some of the storms in our lives are because of our disobedience. I'm not saying everyone, I'm not going to be Job's comforters, but you need to examine your heart to see if that's the case. It's pretty simple. God's got a lot of commands on how we're to serve him, and if you're not doing it, I would say that's probably the reason why it's coming upon you. Have you ever examined your life in light of the word of God to see if you're disobeying? Have you become the Lord of your life in your time concerning serving Christ? We should be serving him all the time. If we're his bond servants, our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Some of you might be like Jonah. You're in a terrible storm. You're spiritually asleep. You're not calling on the Lord. People around you are suffering. You're not concerned. How is it that you are sleeping? How is it that you are doing this? Could it be the Lord is responsible for your difficulties? Confess and be restored. And folks, not every servant in Scripture is relayed like Jonah. Jonah is an example of disobedience. And it is written for our instruction that we might not crave evil things. Confess and be restored. Jonah didn't trust that God's commands were good, so he didn't obey. What about you? Are you trusting and obeying? Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.